Welcome back to another episode of Stern Chats. Today's guest is Stern alum, Brian Shimmerlich. Brian is a co-founder and CEO of Vango Labs, a software and media company that built high-tech small vending machines. Brian started his company while he was a student at Stern in 2012, and since then he has grown his company and distributed their vending machines all over the world. Andrew, will you tell us more about Brian? Brian's company has created a digital retail experience that brings convenience to customers and engages them in a new way. When he first started working on this idea, Brian won the New York City Next Idea 2012 contest. His company, Vango Labs, was later featured on the show Shark Tank, where he was able to successfully negotiate a deal with the Sharks. Brian is a super interesting guy, and I can't wait for you all to hear more. Special thanks to Nasham Jamshidi for producing this episode, Dan Tennyson in the booth, and Bob Kerr as always. We always appreciate their help. So, Andrew, should we start the show? Let's flip the switch and get going. Cue that music. From New York University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Welcome back to another episode of Stern Chats. Today, we're excited to have Stern alum, Brian Schimmerlich, who is the co-founder and CEO of Vango Labs. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Of course. So Brian, one thing that we have all of our guests do is give their 20-second elevator pitch. I don't know if you remember that from back when you were an MBA here at Stern, but uh, we'd love to learn a little bit more about you. Yeah, absolutely. So. I grew up in Westchester, went to Michigan undergrad. I started a business there, but then went the corporate route. I did six years in finance before coming to Stern and launched Vengo right here out of these halls. We have so much to talk about. You have such a full, really interesting, rich story. Um, I'm curious, you, ta- you talked about Vengo already. Can you give us sort of the pitch on what Vengo is and sort of the story about how you came up with it? Yeah, absolutely. So Vengo, in its simplest form, is a small digital cloud-based vending machine. And so we are helping brands reach into spaces like universities, gyms, engage the audience, drive trial products, right? So as people are spending less and less time in brick-and-mortar retail and younger consumers are harder and harder to reach, we found this avenue to reach into these untapped spaces where people actually need products and we can literally and genuinely drive value for the consumer by getting them things that they need and introducing new products. So this resulted out of an idea that you had, um, I believe from a taxi, whereby you wanted to have vending machines and taxis. You thought, okay, here you are going between meetings. You might need some gum. You might need some water, something else. Um, And that was the impetus of the idea. Is that correct? Exactly correct. So my first year at Stern, Uh, that idea developed and really just thinking of that space and that moment in your day Mm -hmm. as a good opportunity to try new products. Um, We ended up applying to a competition. It was actually outside of Stern. It was the uh, New York City Next Idea competition run by the actual government of New York City. And we won the whole thing. So we were named New York City Next Idea 2012. This was way back. And we got $17,000 of seed capital. 
And that's what got us out into the market. And we sort of experimented and tried different avenues until we found that product market fit. And the coolest thing about Van Gogh is that we actually have a machine at Stern, second floor, by our study suite in the study room. So if you're a prospective student on a tour or a current student looking for a cell phone charger, you just stop by this like very cute, sleek-looking machine that you would never even notice unless you were walking by um, and just saw that it's not like a clunky old vending machine. It's like very next level and new age with the way that you guys have designed it. Yeah, thank you. We started with two in Stern. We're actually up to about 30 across campus. So oh, every wow. time new spaces are opening up across campus, they call us in. And we love, you know, so for example, we're in the third floor study lounge, right? So it's actually in the spaces where people are spending time. Mm-hmm. So Brian, before we go into a bit more about how Vango got off the ground. I'd love to learn a little bit more about your background. Um, you mentioned you went to the University of Michigan. You had an idea there for, for a startup around the grocery business. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that and where your entrepreneurial spirit came from? Definitely. So similar concept of just trying to connect people with things that they want, right? So I'm at, uh, at Michigan in Ann Arbor, and you've got this massive campus with like 40,000 people. And no real high-quality grocery stores on campus. Yet, five minutes driving down the road, great high-quality grocery stores, prepared food, everything you could possibly want. Just to set the stage, this is before, like, Google got to Ann Arbor and it, and it really blew up into a more modern town. Is yeah. that correct? Okay. Pre-Instacart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. This is uh, 2003. Okay. And so... Just came up with the idea of trying to connect the the student audience, uh, mostly did not have vehicles, uh, to that. And so we found a partner, built up a, a pitch, and got in front of the CEOs of some of these big grocery chains out there. And ultimately, it was completely unsuccessful. And what we found was these grocery store CEOs were sort of like, we already have a successful business without tapping into that student population. Mm-hmm. You're 19 years old. Why would I trust my food with you? And it was incredibly frustrating because mm. the opportunity was there. We knew we could execute it, but we just couldn't get that partnership. And so that's what drove me to really sort of retreat from that entrepreneurial spirit and start out you know, at J.P. Morgan in a big corporate bank. What what do you wish you knew from that experience? Obviously, you learned a lot about you know your age and partnerships and the way the grocery sort of conglomerates work. But what do you what did you take away from that um, as you were looking towards your next entrepreneurial adventure? I think at the time the biggest takeaway was just the frustration, mm-hmm. and that when I came back, it, I needed to uh, have a little bit more credibility to execute. Mm -hmm. I think knowing what I've learned over the past, you know, 10, 15 years, I think I should have kept pushing and and kept fighting and and figuring out ways to build out the market without that that CEO Mm -hmm. approval sign off, right? So if I came to him and had already built up the demand side from from the students, and I was able to show him like real money on the table. Um, you know, basically, you just got to keep running through those walls. Right? Is it surprising that I hit a wall? Like, absolutely not. I mean, there's walls everywhere. The world is not set up for for you to succeed and for things to be easy. Mm-hmm. And so, I think I just uh, was 
too young and inexperienced to know that you just got to bounce off that wall and, and find another avenue. So when you're spending your six years post-undergrad in banking, were you always sitting there thinking, hmm, I really want to do something again within the grocery industry, within consumer products? I'm going to strategically go back to business school to start something on my own? Or was it more of a discovery once you left during business school? How calculated was it? So I always knew this was the direction that I wanted to go. Going through the experience of, of working at J.P. Morgan for another bank, you know, I went there hoping that I would love it and, and that would become a new passion. It just didn't happen, right? So I show up at J.P. Morgan, I'm looking around the room, and I realized pretty quickly everyone was pretty miserable, right? And so I went through this process of being like, is this normal? Is this what work is life? Is this what work is like? And trying to understand sort of that process of transitioning out of undergrad into the real world. And so my takeaway was this is, this is normal. This is what life is like. Like people come, they work, they make money. They're not happy. That is uh, too much to ask. That is a luxury. And for a while kind of just accepted that. And had a really tough time just transitioning to the working world. I think after that, I sort of started thinking, okay, this is not acceptable. Like, I need to find something else that I, I am passionate about. And I saw business school as that opportunity to essentially have a safety net where I can go out and try different things and figure things out. Where does this self-awareness come from? I noticed in your Crunchbase bio, too, it says... You worked in finance, you worked at JP, but you weren't happy there. And I really found the fact that you're so authentic and open about your unhappiness in this dream job moment um, to be really refreshing in a world where we're always like, oh, yeah, we did this and we did this and we went here. And we don't really talk about how it made us feel, what we learned from that. Have you always been so like in tune with your thoughts and your actions or where does that come from? Yeah, I think it comes naturally. Uh, a confidence to go out and know that happiness is the goal. Mm -hmm. um, money is not the goal. And so I think life is short and people get pushed onto this path of doing what's expected from them. And I, I've never really felt uh, a part of that. Uh, I'm just have always uh, wanted to uh, focus on happiness first. Mm -hmm. And I think, and, and, you know, I'm not the only one saying this, like if you look at some of the entrepreneurial leaders out there, it's about success comes from doing something that you're passionate about and makes you happy. And I, I wish, um, you know, everyone was able to achieve that. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite quotes is, your passions are not random, they're your calling. And so we always think that the things we love are just so arbitrary and make no sense. But then if you actually follow it, you'll find this drive and spirit that you never had before in your life you know, funneled into one area. And I don't know about you, Devna, but immediately after undergrad, similarly to Brian, when I hit the working world, I definitely felt the same way of, is this what, is this what it is? Um, am I doing this for money? Am I basically working, getting money, going home, hoping that my home life is better than my work life and going through this um, process day in and day out? But I guess I, I, I've, I eventually gravitated towards happiness, came to Stern and switching careers. Curious, did you feel that same way? 
I think I was so overwhelmed by what it what meant to be working, especially in New York for the first time. But I had that same thought about leaving Stern and graduating and what does life like? Because while we all had wonderful, fulfilling summer internships, we all went there and we're like, oh, my God, we're actually working now. And this is real life. And Stern can very much feel like Disneyland and summer camp and all these fun things at once where you are worried about your accounting test and you're worried about club meetings. But it's not working, like you said, every day, day in, day out, and having this routine where there's not a lot of variability and you aren't your own boss, unless you're like you, who starts your own very successful startup. Yeah, so one of the things that was just a total culture shock was after my my six years in finance, right? And when you're saying, you know, oh, you're so self-aware, you need to go this way. Six years is a long time. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was working uh, and unhappy for six years. I wish it was shorter. Mm. Um, but it but it took me that time to sort of realize uh, that I needed to change the path. And so when I was accepted to Stern, I immediately quit my job, right? And I interned for minimum wage alongside unemployed college graduates. Mm. And I interned at a startup called Conductor. And I just had such an amazing experience where instantly I just got a totally different vibe where the people who were showing up were there because they wanted to and they were passionate about the the domain expertise. And so I had this amazing experience coming into Stern where I started doing reporting for an account manager and three weeks later, I was interning directly for the CEO, this guy, Seth Bismartnik, um, and his company was just acquired by WeWork. So I got that experience to sit uh, sort of like by the, uh, the captain's seat and see what it is like to run a startup. And I was just completely blown away. So before even day one of, of showing up here, I, had the, I was armed with that experience knowing uh, what I want. So when you got to campus... Did you view this as, okay, I want to use the resources that Stern has to launch my startup. I want to find co-founders here. Um, What was your attitude? How did you approach it? Yeah, so I'm very rational. I thought of it as I have two years to start a successful business. And my worst case scenario is that I will fail and I will get a better job upon graduating. I never really thought about it as finding co-founders here because I think about a, the right co-founder as someone who is very complimentary. So my co-founders came through personal network, through NYU's engineering school. Um, you know, honestly, I think when I first started the company, I definitely had that old school finance mentality of I'm the founder and I'm going to hire people to work for me. And... Uh, you know, sort of did some things right, some things wrong, but found great co-founders. And ultimately, it's really you you really want to invest in finding the right people and giving up a ton so that these people are highly incented to uh, to give it everything that they've got. I'm curious what resources or mentors, professors, clubs you were able to leverage um, during your two years at Stern. I'm sure we have a lot of people listening who want to come to Stern and start their own business or are actually at Stern working on their business as well. Yeah, and, and it's been great to see, in addition to all the things that we had back then, there's also just been so much improvement um, over the last five years. So what Frank Rimolovsky uh, at the NYU Venture Fund has done, opening up the Leslie E-Lab and just acting as a hub to not just 
represent Stern, but leverage NYU campus-wide. So I think at my time, there was so much available at Stern, but it really wasn't um, highly integrated with engineering, which is so crazy because it really is about that pairing between business and engineering that creates the magic. Um, so I've seen a lot of improvement on that integration, uh, but you know, our first investors came through board of trustee relationships, um, co-founders, mentorship from professors. Uh, we worked with Galloway. Um, just been, it was just a great launching ground where it was up to you to go and, and execute. It's so interesting you mentioned the connection with engineering. Um, one thing I did during my, my first year at MBA is me and a team of other MBA ones participated in the Patagonia National Case Competition. We made it to the finals. We did not win the competition, mainly because every other school was a team effort between engineering mm. and MBA. And it was something that we completely overlooked, which thinking about it in hindsight is, is pretty ridiculous, right? We're coming in trying to do an environmental solution that involves um, products and supply chains. You need engineering there. So I'm really glad you brought that up and hit upon that. Yeah, it's cool, though, because Stern is always looking for ways to innovate, which is why I love being here, because you never know what's going to come around the corner. So I know, like, for the spring semester, there's a new class offered with the Tandon School all about robotics, and it's called, like, commercializing technology. And so I think that Stern is working as tech develops to connect those two really, I mean, connect these two really strong academic powerhouses so we mix and mingle with each other. So like you said, you're diversifying your roster of people to work with and work for at the same time. Yeah. I literally went to Brooklyn and went to the robotics club meetings, right? Yeah. And so, you know, Stern gives you a ton, um, but, you know, in real life, like, it's also up to you just to uh, go out and make it happen, Definitely. right? So no one at Stern was telling me, like, oh, go to the robotics club, but it's all here and you just got to navigate it. Did you have any favorite classes that you took? You mentioned that Scott Galloway was helpful um, as you were starting up your company. Curious about any other professors or classes that you really um, you look back on? Yeah, you know, we had raised our seed round prior to, uh, you know, finishing school. Wow. So my priority was always executing on, on the business. I love that there were so many entrepreneurial classes where my project mm -hmm. could actually be Vengo. And I was able to work through that um, in real time. So making progress, going through the academic process and working on my business and getting that that feedback, it, it, it was great. So when you talk about um, back to Vengo and the, and the beginnings of that company, starting with Taxi Treats, um, can you talk about, again, the original idea why it didn't work and how you pivoted? Because I think pivoting w was the key point here as to where you were able to find your success. You realized something didn't work. However, the bones of it were great. How can we continue to be successful? Yeah, so we loved the concept of just the market of the New York City taxis. Believe it or not, this was like almost pre-ride sharing. Um, and so it was like we just saw the taxis as just this massive opportunity where the number of people going in each car each day was, you know, so impressive. And we saw it as a centralized place where uh, we could access this potential distribution. We, by coming through the government program, we sort of had uh, the door open and we would meet with the TLC, the Taxi and Limousine uh, Commission, 
And we quickly just realized that a startup with 17000 in seed capital was not a position to execute on this right then. And so that got us out into the market where we started really like talking to big consumer packaged goods companies who are the largest advertisers in the world. We started uh, talking to big locations and we realized there just wasn't a lot of innovation in terms of uh, digital plus physical sort of internet of things concepts out in the real world, right? Everything was like digital, digital, digital. I consider myself very much a contrarian and so loved the idea of creating something physical. So as we were continuing to make progress and push on government regulation, we were like, we got to get out into the market and we tried different spaces. Did you ever have an idea where you thought to yourself, this is a bad idea? Because as an entrepreneur, you always see the good, but then there's always an element of self-doubt. I'm curious about how you manage being excited about, you know, your passion and, and really your work that you've been working so long for, but also wondering if it's actually any good. So I have a co-founder named Stephen Bullfill, and he is my, uh, my devil's advocate. Mm-hmm. So every idea he presents, the sort of rational... Um, pessimistic type uh, approach, which is really a nice balance because I tend to be pretty optimistic and mm. positive. And so, frankly, you know, that, that's been pretty helpful. And then now as we have some real operating experience, um, I'm able to sort of channel that, uh, that perspective to think about like, okay, this is a great idea, uh, but in terms of transitioning to the operations, the execution of it, is this feasible? And being able to really say no to a lot of things, which is not fun, but it's a big part of my job now. So just to pivot, since we're talking about pivoting here, um, you had this idea, you're ready to go. How did you approach funding it? Um, for our listeners who don't know, um, you guys went to Shark Tank, and you received actually some debt financing out of that experience. What was the decision-making process like to go that route versus seed funding? I know you guys took on some seed funding. Um, I think a lot of entrepreneurs would be interested to hear that mentality because I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who are like, I'm going to go to Shark Tank. This is how I'm going to fund my thing, and this is how it's going to go. Yeah, so our first capital was from that New York City government competition, which was a great platform to get us going. After that, we leveraged the Stern community to put together a million-dollar seed round. So we were able to skip the friends and family round. We were sort of able to skip, you know, me investing uh, my life savings into the business, and we were sort of on our way. So post-seed round was when we uh, started approaching Shark Tank, and it actually happened right here. Um, They had an open casting call out of NYU. Oh, really? Interesting. And it happened. We had a huge advantage because our product was in the space that was hosting the open casting call. So we crushed that and we were on our way um, and mostly saw it as an opportunity to, uh, you know, increase uh, the awareness around Vengo. Thinking about it, you know, we're not the consumer products company that you're going to go online and buy it uh, and we're going to sell a ton overnight but just awareness as people see Vengos in the wild to identify them. Um, they're, as you mentioned, they look different. And so trying to work on that consumer education. And uh, we ended up coming away with uh, funding. 
We have so many questions. I'm such a huge Shark Tank fan, and so when I was telling my friends and family that I was interviewing you, they had a ton of questions about what it's actually like. Because we know it's an entertainment show. It's there, um, you know. But I'm curious about what's it like to actually be in that room, and how real-time is this conversation that's happening? Completely real-time. So you never, you know, you don't meet with the sharks until you are in that room. And it's very much real-time, real conversation, and they are firing questions at you. So someone will ask you a question, you open your mouth to answer, and then you get asked another question. And they try to put you in this position where you sort of, either direction that you go, you have to be disrespectful to one of the shots. (laughs) And so navigating that is challenging. Um, Funny, another NYU connection is we spoke to uh, the founders behind Keen Home, Mm-hmm. who also were a Shark Tank success, and they are also NYU. And so I was able to connect with them, like, days prior to taping, and they gave me so much valuable information. And in turn, you know, it's been a pleasure for me to then do that for others and pass that through. Um, so that was extremely helpful to know what I was getting into and uh, and be prepared. How much time do you actually have with the sharks themselves, and who were the sharks um, on your episode? So the sharks that were there were Mark, Damon, Kevin, Lori, and Robert. Oh, wow. So like the OG sharks. Yeah. And we spent an hour and a half in the room. So it's very different for each person. Mm -hmm. I think some people are probably five minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, We were able to engage with them and get their interest. And uh, it was was a uh, interesting hour and a half. I'm sure. Um, So for those who have never seen Shark Tank before, essentially it's a show where they bring in these new innovative startups and companies. You get to come on the show and essentially you ask for funding and for money. But part of it is also coming up with an initial offering. And I'm curious about... How did you strategize creating that valuation for yourself? Because sometimes you're watching the show and they're like, $10 million valuation. And I'm like, you have literally never made a product or made a business card in your life. How are you asking these people to invest in your company this way? So curious about um, the equity conversation you had with your co-founder and then sort of pitching this to the sharks as well. Yeah, and when you come in with a dollar ask, I think they're basically their only rule is you have to get that amount or greater. Mm-hmm. Um, And so we came in with a $2 million ask, which is, you know, 10x probably higher than the average. So, I mean, one, we had raised capital, right? So we had a fiduciary duty to previous investors um, to represent them. And so we sort of came up with a valuation that was similar to a previous round. So knowing that they would find the valuation obscene and, and preparing to defend it, And uh, it ended up going better than expected, right? Because we were able to prepare for them being like, how in the world did you come up with that? Definitely. Interesting. So as somebody who does not watch Shark Tank that religiously, I mean, I've seen a couple of episodes here and there. um, You guys had a unique structure whereby they invested debt in you with with a payback period. Is that something that's common? Is that something that you were secretly hoping for when you went in there? Maybe talk a bit about that. When I went in there, I had no idea that that would be an option on the table. Got it. So it was very much like a real-time reaction. And I believe since then it has become more common, but it was uh, definitely a surprise. But we were armed with sort of just knowing 
what the market is. And so we were able to use that as a benchmark of reasonableness, um, you know, and, and negotiate with them. Got it. You were also able to strike a deal, though, with two sharks, Kevin O'Leary, who I would argue is like the toughest shark to ever convince. He doesn't like anything. And then Lori uh, as well. What is that partnership like and sort of what has your relationship like with been with them since you've then since left the show? Yeah, Kevin was very well behaved for us. <laughs> and, you know, we I sort of got that they we're trying to. Uh, create some drama, so pushed for them to team up, um, knowing that uh, you know that that's the outcome that everyone wants. Because they're a good yin and yang. Kevin yeah. is very intense, and Lori seems very like reasoned and yeah. and optimistic, and you know. Man, you're all over this. I, I I mean, I have not. You know, when you are at home and there's nothing to watch on TV, <laughs> and there's a Shark Tank um, series on, you just like literally watch the whole thing. So clearly, I know way more about Shark Tank than I let on. I guess. Yeah, and I don't really watch it anymore, but I think one of the beautiful things about Shark Tank is uh, for young people, they seem to really enjoy it and sort of learn some basics about starting a company, raising money. And so that's one of the really nice outcomes of it. Um, But in terms of the partnership today, it's uh, pretty strong. We're in touch on like a monthly basis and uh, we're uh, excited to see what the next steps are. We're, We're making good progress. Last Shark Tank question. Okay. Is it not fun to watch anymore, or does it stir up all this, like, all these memories of you being in that room for an hour and a half? Because I use Shark Tank as a verb now, where I'm like, oh, you're going to go in this interview room, they're going to Shark Tank you, be ready, and people instantly know what that means. I'm just very focused on time management, Mm -hmm. productivity. I'm either on, working, trying to drive Bengal forward, or off and trying to drive relaxation and happiness. Um, I have a daughter now. Um, so just uh, just a time management, limited hours issue. I think they should make you a shark in the future. That's my pitch for them. <laughs> I'm ready to go. <laughs> I'm going to tweet at Kevin after this episode airs and tell him you should be a shark. Let's so, do it. So after Shark Tank wraps up, what were the next steps for Van Gogh? Um, how has the company grown since then? Is it something that you've relied on, or have you relied really on the product and the marketing that you've been doing yourself? Yeah, I mean, you can't you can't rely on anyone, right? Right. So it's all about the product, the execution, the growth, the team. Um, so that definitely helped put us on the map. Uh, it's definitely helped us attract additional funding, and we've been growing. So we're up to about a thousand Vengos, reaching about twenty five million people a month, and uh, we're working on next steps to keep growing and really open up. Uh, those gym and college channels to marketers uh, at scale in major markets. Do you consider Vengo a vending machine company, or how do you categorize yourself? So I I consider us a a marketing company mm-hmm. and a technology company. Um, we love the physical. There's a hardware component. Um, for a while, I was sort of trying to position it as that not existing, and oh, it's just this software and tech company. But the physical is really what differentiates us, and it's a Trojan horse strategy that gets us access to set up our digital and our physical space. Do you guys sell condoms? I was going to make the pun with the Trojan horse. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You can go and check out the Vengo on the third floor. There we go. And you can see if we have condoms in there for you. (laughs) Um, But how do you measure success in terms of the actual – not only product, physical product, but also the the intangible as well. And how much like real time information are you getting um, from all these like thousands of of machines that are around? 
Yep. So we are seeing all of the information flow in real time. So we can see, basically, can think about it as a website that's just brought into real life, mm -hmm. right? So clicks are clicks, right? Touching the screen is, is our click, and we're able to track that, understand, hey, we're seeing so much engagement here. Uh, what are the characteristics of this location and location within the location um, that's driving so much value that people continually are choosing to engage with it? Or on the other side of the spectrum, we have certainly out of a thousand, we have some that we don't see high engagement, and we try to learn from that as well. Um, so we are sort of sitting in the cloud, managing the network and looking to optimize it and ultimately just provide value to the people in these spaces. So going back to the mega machine upstairs on third, Stern was your first big customer. How did you convince Stern to go with you? I mean, obviously you're an alum, you can get in the door, but at the end of the day, you're selling a product. What was that conversation like? Yeah, Stern was so helpful, and it was our first huge, legit client that helped us. You know, f there was like a six to 12 month period where all of our conversations with other locations were like, well, NYU does this, well, Stern does this, Stern does that. And it definitely was highly helpful and valuable. Um, we had a huge uh, foot in the door, so they definitely were supportive of the company as a NYU company. But at the end of the day, we still had to get it done and, and uh, make it happen. So it, it was interesting to learn about from the sort of uh, physical building perspective how roles and responsibilities across the organization break down. And, you know, to no one's surprise, it's complex. We started here in Stern and we worked with uh, Neil Rader who was incredibly helpful in great sort of guy. great guy and facilitated everything, made it as easy as possible for us, and, you know, we delivered on our side. The, the interesting story about Neil is I, I think I've mentioned on this podcast before that um, I help organize our Thursday night beer event here at Stern called Beer Blast. And this guy's like... I'm the, familiar with yes, this. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and, this, and this guy, Neil, he's the, the COO of Stern, is the keeper of the keys to the kingdom for that. And he's always been extremely supportive of any student initiative. Can't say enough, enough nice things about him. We love you, Neil. We love you, Neil, <laughs> for sure. What are your goals moving forward? And what's sort of your vision as someone who is obviously running this very successful company now and doing so well? But, and how do you basically set these milestones um, for a rapidly changing sort of field at the same time? Yeah, so I think in terms of long-term goals, we want to be the most powerful marketing platform for a physical product. Uh, it's really interesting what's happening with retail in our, in our current environment, and we just think having the physical and the digital is going to be really powerful. Uh, in terms of how we manage towards those goals and, and KPIs, it's really about um, distribution, uh, deployment of Vengo's, growth there, uh, the unit economics within each uh, Vengo that is deployed um, and just really building to scale in a cohesive, strategic way. Got it. Have you faced any notable hiccups along the way? I imagine anybody who starts a company would face these types of obstacles, but you were able to overcome and you've almost used as a case study of saying, we had this issue, this is how we solved it, let's think about problems going forward this way. Yeah, I can think of uh, two issues. One, when we first started, we thought about locations in terms of the consumer, 
right? So we were like, well, if a consumer goes from school to the bar, we want to reach that consumer and we want to touch them at three points during their day. The way that the world works is media is not bought that way, right? So the media buyers want a cohesive network and they think about that really in terms of one specific vertical, right? So having a small amount of gyms, a small amount of colleges, and a small amount of bars does not help us build a powerful network. And so in hindsight, it's really obvious. It's not like a genius level insight. It's about focus and it's about building something cohesive. Um, the second thing is I think we really hit a hiccup uh, on sort of Series A type capital. Okay. Um, not necessarily that the Series A funding crunch is real, but in terms of a Internet of Things product, it's, uh, we found ourselves a bit in no man's land in terms of stage and sector. And so we had to get creative in finding uh, capital sources that were outside of that traditional Series A uh, venture capitalist. And so that was a, a hiccup that uh, really drove us to be strategic and sort of go outside of that traditional trajectory and path. I spent my summer interning at Amazon this summer, so I'm always curious about the dynamic between a company that large that's basically in every space disrupting everything every day, and how, if at all, does that impact what you guys do on a day-to-day -day basis or even your long-term plans as well? We obviously think and talk about Amazon a lot, and when you look at some of the things they've done in the physical world, like lockers, uh, you know, all of a sudden, Vengo can be seen in, in maybe a different light mm -hmm. of a little bit more strategic. We, When you think about the physical being something that is a hurdle to attracting capital and scaling, the flip side of that is it also, in my opinion, builds a bit of a moat, right? Because once we're in a location, it's very, very sticky. Our churn is like sub half a percent annually. And so you can't press a button and scale the company, and you can't press a button and achieve our distribution. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, Amazon would be like a dream acquirer. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what they're doing with Amazon Go is really interesting. So definitely top of mind for just about everyone. Sure. Got it. So you mentioned you have a daughter. Was that something that happened after Stern? Was that after... Um, things got smooth with thing or more smooth as somebody who is married and is obviously thinking about a family at some point down the road as I think a lot of students in business school are mm -hmm. what were what was your thought around that so not much thought in terms of the relation and and getting the the stage right you know timing is never perfect um so definitely post stern right in the middle of the chaos of running a startup um, luckily, my wife, Jen, uh, is on top of things and, and absolutely uh, leads the family in terms of uh, knowing what needs to be done and, and assigning me my roles. Um, so no, no real thought there. It's, you know, I definitely think in the seed type stage, it may be challenging, but the, but the timing is never right. And you always figure out how to make it work. And in some ways, you know, coming home, I, I have the luxury of coming home early and being with my daughter to 
give her a bath, put her to bed, and then I can go back to work. And that actually serves as a really nice break for me. Um, but then the, the day is still extended. Is it hard to have that pressure, though, as an entrepreneur where everything is on your shoulders? There's no one sort of in the office doing things. Really, like, people are waiting for you at any given time. Because you mentioned being really mindful about your time and not wasting time like me watching reruns of old TV shows. Um, <laughs> so I'm curious about your strategies, your tips, and sort of how you disconnect the pressure um, from being an entrepreneur to being excited about it at the same time. Yeah, and, and it's not easy. I, I don't have it down. Um, but in terms of productivity, I like to keep it old school. Mm -hmm. I have a paper notebook. No and way. I'm, and I'm literally using a page and on the left side putting the things I want to accomplish for the week. And then on the right side doing uh, one for the day. And then if you do that every morning and it's something that like as you're getting pulled around, you can reference. I find it to be extremely effective um, in terms of work versus not work. I like to just try to go all in on whatever I'm doing and just be completely present with that, right? So on Friday nights, once I am done with work, my phone is on airplane mode and away from me. Hmm. And I find that to be highly healthy. Um, and, you know, ultimately things can wait between a Friday night and a Saturday morning. Brian, you gave us a lot to think about today. Um, I guess as a parting thought, what's next for Vengo? Are you guys going to go back to the taxi slash Uber market? Um, are you really concentrated on how the business is performing currently? Our plan is really to scale in the verticals that we're in and do it in a strategic way that reaches into the top media markets. Um, so that is absolutely our focus and our goal. At the same time, we do have some, some interesting uh, additions to that that we're working on that hopefully we'll uh, uh, be able to talk about soon and continuing to expand and grow and, and reach people in interesting spaces. Awesome. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining us and for making our lives a little bit easier when we're running around the hallways of Stern. Absolutely. Thank you, guys.